0: hello everybody and welcome back to the doomer optimism podcast i am here with stephanie lepp and nora bateson um both second time appearance for both um so stephanie is going to help me co-host but we like to run these more as a conversation than anything um so i'll let stephanie go um sort of run her introduction um and then we'll get started so welcome everybody sweet thank you ashley hello doomer optimists yes i'm stephanie
1: lepp i'm the executive producer at the center for humane technology and uh, we are joined by someone i've been wanting to speak to for a long time although maybe the conversation has already begun Um, and that is filmmaker writer and educator nora bateson welcome nora
2: so nice to be here again
1: thanks yeah yeah, and so before I kind of frame up our conversation, I would love to invite you to to actually to introduce
2: yourself. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Um, yeah, that's always a, a question of how to introduce yourself, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um, okay, so right now, the way that I would introduce myself um, is that I am um, continuing. That's okay. Um I'm I I'm going to introduce myself by saying that I am continuing um at least two generations of uh the project of advocating for life making more life. And so what's important to me about that is that um, I don't feel that I'm holding this in a, a, a really individualistic way. So much of what I'm holding is moving through me. Sometimes it comes out, out of my blood, and then my brain catches up later on. Um, the, these ideas and this work is not just about writing essays and teaching courses or making films, it's about breakfast and it's about how you hold your lover and it's about playing with the dog. And it's about, um, the most intimate banal moments are also part of this project. Um, and that really happens in this intergenerational way, like a, uh, like a, like an artisan, project you know over many generations so that's what I want to say so so right now that's how I want to frame this and whether I am an author or a filmmaker or a mom or like a what a whatever it's kind of inconsequential because no matter what I'm doing I'm doing that Mm
1: -hmm. yeah amen Amen. Yeah. You just so happen to be maybe doing it in the medium of motherhood at a particular moment or in the medium of film at another particular moment. I think we're all doing it in the medium of motherhood at this particular moment. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nora. Um, So I'm going to just lay out um, some thoughts um, to kind of frame up the conversation and then we'll dive in. So, yeah. So the reason I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time is because I've been sitting with this question for a while. This question of I'm just going to ask it as: What are the epistemological implications of the extent to which everything is connected? Oh, I don't know the answer to that question. I think the answer is yes. Um. Oh, well, maybe that. Maybe this little part should be. Uh, we can talk. I. I mean, I think this part can be edited, but are you asking for a reason?
2: Just because the phone rang.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh. I that. Yeah. yeah, we can cut that out okay. and we'll cut this part yeah. out, too. Yeah, so. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. What are Good. the
1: epistemological implications? The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, Uh, So yeah, no, it's uh, it's all good. Sure, I can re-ask it. Yeah, what are the epistemological implications of the extent to which everything is connected, right? If everything is connected, do we really need to gather all possible data as if that were even possible? Or is there some form of, I call it fractal epistemology because I don't know what to call it, but some form of like, by knowing one part or knowing a part that we can know as humans, can we know about, I don't know if the entire thing, but about more? Mm -hmm. um of the thing that we are trying to know and the reason i'm asking these questions is because you know we're in a precarious place we don't necessarily have time to know everything um and you know i think we're we're in we're in an intellectual space together we're we're surrounded by there's a few galaxy brains shall we say i'm not going to name any names but who seem to be in the business of kind of like trying to know as much as possible as if it's like disconnected from each other or disconnected from us um but i would say it's not it's not even only about time it's also about knowing being a relationship between the knower and what we're trying to know and if i were to put it kind of crudely but you know in Nora in your terms cold data is a cold relationship warm data is a warm relationship you know how does the way we know affect? What we are trying to know you know and when we love something and we're in true dialogue with it maybe it kind of tells us <laughs> what well, we need to know in order to kind of like maintain our loving relationship with each other so um i'll just give a couple examples to kind of ground this um and then and then i'm going to hand it over to you so the things that kind of come to mind as examples would be, so there's, there's an old book about herbs called the doctrine of signatures. I can't say I know very much about it, but something I know, I just remember there being this principle that, you know, if a plant is yellow and it grows by water, it's probably a diuretic. It's Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we co-evolved. Like, thank you for communicating with me in a language I can understand. If you're yellow and you grow by water, you're probably a diuretic. Thank you for letting me know, you know, Mm -hmm. or, um, the three sisters, another example, so the three sisters, corn beans and squash have been grown together throughout the history of Mesoamerica, and I just have i I noticed that in the kind of like scientific literature on the three sisters it's 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 like, oh wow, what a coincidence um like those plants um grow well together and they give us complementary nutrients. It's like, that's not a coincidence. it's like it's because they grow well together that they. Give us compliment. How could it be otherwise? Mm-hmm. That's 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 the way it is. Um, and I'll and I'll give one. I'll give. So it's like we don't need to know. We didn't need to, or maybe we need. I don't know. There's a question of what what do we need to know? Maybe, but but it 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 tells us. It it, it is telling us what we need to know by growing well together. the The, the last story I'll mention is um, there's this amazing story. Sorry, this is going on a little no, long. No, this but is the okay. last story I'll share. Okay. So this is, um, there's this amazing story about foie gras. So foie gras apparently is a naturally occurring phenomenon whereby geese in the fall gorge themselves on dry leaves to prepare for the winter. And so it was this naturally occurring, it was just foie gras when we made it at that time of the year, when we killed geese at that time of the year, their livers were delicious. And it was actually the pharaoh, in Egypt, who's like this is so good. I want to be able to eat this year round. And so, you know, forced slaves. Like, in what other context could it could this have emerged other than someone having this much power over other people that they could say, "Hey, you other people, do this horrible thing that's going to be really not fun to do, like force feed leaves into the throats of geese, in order to get me this food." So that's how, and so, and so a couple of years ago, there was this, um, I guess it's like the Olympics for food, um, in France and, uh, and foie gras is part of the competition. And there's this one farmer in France who, um, just, he does, he, he just, he just has his foie gras. He just lets, he only produces it in the fall. He mm. just lets the geese do their thing. And so his foie gras is not force fed. It's just when it happens during the year and he entered his foie gras into the competition and sustainability is not a criterion it's all about texture and flavor and whatever it is that we you know we want and foie gras and he won and he has won every time i think and, and the judges didn't even know and to mm-hmm. me that is that is like we can even taste what is good on our taste buds mm-hmm. it even tastes better to us and so i guess yeah i guess the like i'd love what I'd love for you to do is to, is yes, introduce um, warm data and then kind of, you know, like run with this inquiry of, yeah, what are the epistemological implications of the extent to which everything is connected?
2: I've been, um, I love that you're asking this because just in the past few weeks, I've been kind of playing with some new, not new, new, not new language around it um uh there's been a lot of discussion about sense making and um and one of the interesting things about this is that there's this idea that the the one that is sense making is an individual and Somehow, we also have this this notion of common sense, and and sort of starting to poke around in this realm of questioning. You know, what is in the common sense? If sense making in the commons becomes common sense, it becomes a kind of a kind of premises, a kind of foundational set of epistemological processes that are a given, that are, that are there, that are, that are grounded, right? We think of common sense as being something grounded, that are grounded in our, our, sh- you know, shared experience and not so shared experience, but shared experience of the experience, right? Mm. So, So this is stuff like the question, what's in it for me, right? This is stuff like the question of um, what can I get out of this? How fast is the productivity going to be? Where is this going? How do I know that what we're doing is going to be worth my time? Hmm. Um, The notion of my time. Yeah. Okay, what do I mean? Okay, now this one is a this one's going to push a button or two. What do I mean when I say I need to keep my boundaries? <laughs> okay. Um so what's in this common sense place? And the thing that is ruminating around what you are bringing in for me is um symbiosis. I mean, we are we have symbiosis in our biology books we do actually know and talk about it a little bit um but somehow the process of symbiosis didn't completely overhaul our total cultural epistemological common sense and it should have i mean when you yeah. start to really look at what the implications are and you see that this you know, the tiniest little form of life, the cell, okay, the cell is formed, the the organelle is formed through many organisms coming together. There is not, there is nothing of you that is an individual. Mm -hmm. And, And this is pretty cliche material. On the one hand, we can say, yeah, we're not individuals and you know, we're all one. Um, I don't really find that that interesting. It's beautiful, but what I'm more I- intrigued by is this the the fascination of how this coalescing is taking place. Mm-hmm. And um where did we come from who are we how are we in relationship with the yellow plants by the river and the geese <laughs> that are swallowing leaves in the fall right and and so the epistemological implications are actually completely um radical yeah I mean, this it, it, this should com- this should overhaul education psychology yeah history, um, health, uh, you know, pretty much everything from, from gardening to, to, um, engineering. If you actually take symbiosis seriously, uh, what you start to realize is that the sensing is not yours. Mm. It's happening through this ancestry of organisms that are coming together and and are continuing to. So um, are we gonna have like an exhaustive map of this? I, I really hope not. There are some that might try, but that would never be where I would wanna go with it. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it's not really about the exhaustive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, volumes of listing the connective properties that mm-hmm. that is just tedious and and also uh, irrelevant in a way. um, because what is important is the approach to the perception. Um, if I'm looking for the outline of the individual organisms, guess what I'm going to find? And if I'm looking for the ways in which these organisms are constantly shaping each other, I'm going to be looking in another way. The whole scope and approach and aesthetic of inquiry changes. Mm. So, you know, is there such a thing as an individual? Kinda, but is that useful in terms of, you know, how we're going to live together, how we're going to be in relationship with, um, with the world around us. And, and that is the issue is that there is a, a, a common sense metaphor that of individualism of separatedness of productivity, efficiency um all of these things that came you know fully into focus with industrialism but they were probably brewing before then and um and it's really hard to get out
0: yeah it's really I, hard i i would um jump in there because i i would say part of the frame of this podcast um seems to be um recognizing that we're in a really strange point in human history where a lot of us are like peak oil, like a historical materialist type thinkers. And we think about how this injection of cheap energy um, made it so that we were able to like stop paying attention to or being close enough to our interconnectedness. Um, we we were able to offshore it or to outsource it or to externalize it to the point that we lost the knowledge necessary for like the the, the functioning of that um, interdependence um, if that makes sense so the knowledge about the plants by the river um, was lost because you know we just got diuretics somewhere else in a factory far away and that we didn't need to know it anymore so then we lost that um, and so I think for a lot of us the interest is in re-embracing the interconnectedness common sense um and i think for for a lot of us the warm data perspective is really um helpful because um you know like you were saying before just now nora i think there is something where that totally flows from you know enlightenment rationality industrialism that says something like Humans are so um, brilliant and the the human brain is so um, singularly (laughs) powerful (laughs) that um, Mm -hmm. we can basically control and manipulate nature for our ends. Um, And so then we ask questions in a way that kind of determines the answer in advance. So like some of this cold data scientific questions, um, you know, we're asking questions in a way that like doesn't allow for the fullness of context to to enter in the fullness of the interdependence. Um, So I guess we could just riff a little bit on and I know this is this is a lot of your work, um, you know, I guess trying to re-embrace the commons common sense um interdependence with others and nature but then avoiding the pitfalls of like who do you trust in this world i mean all of us are so disconnected um that i do think there is like a tendency to go toward the galaxy brain who is beginning to talk about the interdependence but maybe not in a way that's like tangible for your own sphere you know like practical in your own life they're talking about it in a way that's like Everything's interconnected throughout all of history and everyone's watching the these analyses that are like, wow, yeah, that's right. But still for me, there's a scale disconnect for like a lot of us where we're trying to answer questions that um are relevant for our own lives. Like literally, how do I, how do I manage my work environment so that I'm able to breastfeed my baby uh to, to the extent that she needs to, this kind of thing. Um, you know, as opposed to like, how did the Romans handle collapse you know like so anyways go go ahead
2: yeah i think a big one in my house um i mean one of the sort of cornerstones of my measurement of exploration around systems change and epistemological shiftings is in the relationship between parent and child particularly around getting the dishes done Okay, so this is this is some kind of place where there's a transmission that's taking place between the generations. And um it, it, there's a a lot of interesting um pushbacks and uh, questions about learning and and you know questions about practicality and authority and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things that we do in the in our households is we make chore wheels, or we put up lists for whose day it is to do dishes. And in the same way that buying that diuretic medication obscured the ability to perceive the relationships on the on the creek bed, So, too, does the chore wheel obscure the relationship, the ability to perceive the relationships in the family. Mm. Mm. Right. You don't really care if your child does dishes on Wednesday. Mm. What's important is that they are beginning to be able to perceive when you're tired. And can't do it. When they need to kick in, not because it's their turn, that's really pretty irrelevant, actually, mm-hmm. but because their family needs them. And maybe before it's a full tilt breakdown need, maybe mm-hmm. when, if it's like, yeah, you know, my mom's been working all day, I I can do this. I just have been hanging out. And that that thinking is so different than it's Wednesday, it's my night. So yeah. I am only going to wash the dishes tonight because tomorrow it's no longer Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Right. And this, this is, um, you know, it's obscuring the possibility of perceiving the territory. It's the a map. And territory need to be done, perceiving yeah. that the dishes are dirty and need to be cleaned. <laughs> and, and yeah. And what's happening in the relationships in the house. Yeah and And so this is something at this very practical you know day in day out place where we are actually teaching the next generation not to pay attention to the very relationships that we're then telling them they have to pay attention to, yeah, and it's madness it's
1: yeah, it's madness. I, I also just I tend to be, as Ashley knows, um, like an all of the above kind of person. So I, I, I mean, c- could, can we hold both? Can we do both? Can we put both in their rightful place? Like, in a way, part of me is, and, and and maybe we'll get to this later. But there's part of me that's also just a little bit like, thank God we gave birth to so many ways of doing things. We're yeah. just overusing some of them you know, but thank God for all of them. I mean, they all, you know, and some of them, we may never, ever, ever need again. Um, but, um, but I, I, I mean, gosh, there's so many directions I want to go. I want to do, I do want to go back to, I love that you brought up education because I do think that that is part of where this rubber meets the road is how are we teaching ourselves to know Mm -hmm. about the world? And specifically, I think the specific area that, that I, that I would kind of Focus on is how do we teach ourselves to understand what is a solution? What mm. is a systemic solution to the problems we face? And are you familiar with the concept of synergistic satisfiers?
2: A little bit, yeah. And I mean, mm. go ahead. Mm. Why don't you, yeah, you can say it what, what it is? is.
1: Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. So um, so this concept was developed by a Chilean economist named um Manfred Max Neef, and it's a name for so phenomena that solve multiple quote-unquote different problems mm-hmm. um or so we think they're different um simultaneously or synergistically so the three sisters would be an example oh wow they complement each other in the soil and they give us complementary nutrients or breastfeeding which you know is valuable for the mom and the baby physically psychologically economically i mean it's it just mm-hmm. it solves multiple quote-unquote different problems synergistically and I would go as far as to say if something does not solve multiple problems quote-unquote simultaneously it shouldn't be considered a solution it shouldn't be a solution at all and so that's kind of where I you know when I say fractal epistemology I don't know if I'm going to stick with that term but it's like if you if it's if you already see it if you if you already see it doing helpful things I don't know at at least two scales like through your eyes and through a microscope, or if, you, if you're if you already seeing something, a pattern of solving that is happening at multiple levels of organization simultaneously, like it's working. Yeah, I like that. And I think we can predict that. I think we can, I think that will tell us, like we could have known Facebook. We could have known so many things because mm-hmm. they tell us what we need to know at multiple levels of organization, including through our eyeballs.
2: Right. Yeah, and the thing is, is that almost everything is happening in multiple contexts simultaneously. So the illusion that we can pull things out of those multi-contextual realms and somehow solve for dishes. Okay. Yeah,
1: one at a time. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, everything um, else just stop while I do this little thing over here.
2: <laughs> is very industrial. Okay, yeah. this is a, a machine-like way of looking. Um, and and so I think, yeah, I you know, breastfeeding is a great example. I use that example too to describe basically every single one of the sustainable development goals in one image. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome right so you don't yeah. need 17 colorful cubes to tell you what the the what we need to do yeah the yeah of a mother breastfeeding her child is clean water clean air it's going yeah. to you know genders are going to have to be respecting each other we're going to have to take care of the oceans there's going to have to be soil cared for there's education the we're going to have to feed the babies the people who feed the babies have to be able to feed their babies and the babies are going to need to be able to feed their babies and, yeah. and so that's the whole picture it's right there yeah it's yeah. right there um and somehow it's much more familiar in in all kinds of meta communications to make a grid of 17 different colored boxes and, and so the important thing is to pay attention to that metacommunication and recognize this is the culture into which this communication is going. This is what the appetite is for the familiar. To look and feel and be like this is an invitation for a particular kind of action a particular kind of pushing the, the levers and the buttons, right? When you see 17 boxes, you can create billions of dollars of committees and projects. <laughs> right. And you can there is yeah. an action plan. Yep. When you see a mother breastfeeding her child, and you say, okay, there's the project. Mm-hmm. Most people are gonna be like, uh, so what am I supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> Create the conditions conducive to breastfeeding. Right. (sighs) What's the doing? And so this is where solutioning for me in systemic ways has to be beyond first order. It has to be beyond, right? So you you make a chore wheel to get the dishes done. Dishes get done. Problem solved. Wrong. (laughs) Problem is not solved all right because that was a first order solution yeah and if you if you are wanting to cuz cuz you have to do multiple things at the same time right so yeah. the thing is is that we actually are doing multiple things we're just half the things we're doing are creating the problems we're trying to solve yeah yeah so they are doing multiple things the chore wheel it is there but it's teaching something That is plugging into a a very strong, potent epistemological framework of Mm -hmm. efficiency and doing and separating and reductionism and the individual. Right. So we have to be super careful when we start playing with that fire. We can play with it. But we better know that we're playing with fire when we play with Yeah.
1: And know that it's maybe training wheels on our way to somewhere and we got to learn how to let them go. You know, we got to teach ourselves to ride a two wheeler eventually. Um,
2: And maybe it's training wheels for how to, you know, clock in and out of an office building. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something
1: maybe we don't really want to. You know, I'll do forever. Um, maybe knowing how to do it can be helpful sometimes.
2: Yeah, um, I am well, and,
1: curious, and I, I yeah, go, for go, it. Ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go. Go ahead. No, I was just. Oh, I, I. This is a very just on this point. Like, I'm just curious. I, I was just wondering if we might kind of <laughs> imagine what would be the kind of um, warm data fractal epistemology. I don't know if it got like version of the chore. <laughs> Before
0: you answer that yeah. question, Nora, um, yeah. I just want to say um I was at a talk recently, I don't remember where it was, where they were talking about um kids when they were learning to ride a bike, they had um training wheels, which are two little wheels that catch you if you fall. Um, so you just can be off of off balance and you just keep getting caught. And now they've invented this thing called a balance bike that has no training wheels but it has no pedals and the kids kind of just push themselves with their feet and they learn how to so balance my son themselves has. on those two yeah. wheels um on the balance bike which then gets them um comfortable to to get onto a regular bike and no, no training wheels are involved at all and i just think that is that was such a perfect metaphor to bring up because I that is think a perfect the, metaphor. yeah the balance bike as a tool it, has, it uses the same kind of balancing mechanism that, that you're going to need. need. On, uh, right. As opposed to the other one that has like a false sense of security that doesn't really teach you the skill needed to balance on a two wheeler bike. Um, so mm. what is the What is the um, chore version?
1: Totally. That, what is I the balanced bike chore wheel? <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, for me, what that was, was saying, hey, come and do this with me. I don't want to do it alone. Can you come help me? And, but I'll t- tell you that we just had this warm data retreat at my house and we brought all these warm data hosts who'd been through all these trainings and things, 40 house guests. <laughs> lots of dishes. And, oh, lots of dishes and no chore wheel, no list of <laughs> responsibilities. Yeah. And and very purposefully, you know, set out to say, look, there's not, there's no list, so pay attention.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, and how did it go? It was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. I mean, and when people did their turn, they did it till it shined, mm-hmm. and it, you know, it, and nobody overdid it, and nobody underdid it, and. Was yeah. it all grown-ups? Was there kids involved? <laughs> well, you know, to tell you the truth, it's easier with kids. <laughs> <laughs> they make it fun. Well, because they are not addicted to the chore wheel. They mm. hate the chore wheel. And the Yeah, grown-ups, yeah. yeah. Well, who's going to take responsibility? What if nobody takes responsibility? What's going to happen? Yeah. Mm. The yeah. fear of like, letting go of this thing was so tangible. But it was fine yeah Yeah.
0: what that reminds me of um so when we have student groups come here to uruguay they're undergrads and you know young enough pliable um and when they come here our we have them work alongside um small-scale family farmers and those farmers have kids who are usually running around when they're on the land and Mm -hmm. when the kid when the um undergraduates come um we also bring our kids and it's like, on purpose, we want to show them that there is a kind of the, uh, part of life where everybody isn't institutionalized, where instead <clears throat> you have to get interrupted. You get interrupted constantly. And there's like this flow between, you know, your responsibilities as a parent and the work you're trying to do in your vocation. Um, there's a way to integrate the two, but then there are times in which they're separate. And so I, we say to them explicitly, like, you know, the farmers are helping us set up Um, volunteer tasks for you all to do. Um, But that Mm. means that their attention, if they're teaching you things gets taken away from their children. So we're asking you to be intuitive, and to notice that and to help out with the kids and play with them when it's appropriate. Mm. Um, And Mm. it's great. And the students love it. I mean, they love like that they're coming to this uh, other country. And, you know, some of their volunteer time is just playing with, you know, a three year old. Mm, And um that's but awesome also i think it doesn't actually take that much to reacquaint our own intuition um but you mm-hmm. do need the right circumstances i think and i think about like right. your house nora um when the students come here um i i rail against this because online all the time you know people want an action plan they want the 17 sustainable development goal boxes and that's almost the enemy to what we're trying to suggest. But it's also very hard to say in words because so much of it is in- intuitive. It's almost just like <laughs> you have to show, not tell. Um, so that, that mm-hmm. is a little bit of a limitation just because a lot of times we're trying to um, communicate across to, to many people at once. We're communicating across distance. We're communicating with text. All of it is very um, disembodied. Um, So I wonder if you have some thoughts about that, Nora, you know, how to how to like bring back this intuitive sense, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, this conversation is really important because what we're talking about is being really careful with these abstractions and the the addiction to the models and to the the idea of a kind of action and productivity that's predetermined and I mean, I'm with you. I see this all over the place and I'm like, ooh, that's not going to go anywhere good. And I feel neg- I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm being negative. And I'm, you know, here's all these people doing all this great work and I'm just going to poo-poo it. And who am I? Um, y- you know, and then, uh, you know, give it give it three years and they're scratching their heads going, well, we don't know what happened to that $30 million or $30 billion or, you know, and I'm like, you know, this, thing was never going to work and they're like well why not and but they still don't really want to know that in order to do systemic work you have to make the space for the relationships to come into play and to start to 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 work on into each other so that they make new relationships so it makes new relationships so it makes new relationships and it's nth order change that you're after and you're never going to trace it back it's mm-hmm. never going to happen if you're doing real systemic work you won't know it <laughs> with a graph but you will know it completely because you will see that there is vitality something mm-hmm. is happening but mm-hmm. the something is not here it's not there it's not here it's not there it's it's, it's it's in it just like you know when you walk into a doctor's office or a school and the culture is bad it's it's bad everywhere. Okay it's bad at the reception desk it's bad in the classroom <sighs> bad at the board is something icky that's gone through all of it right and um so you know but but let's go back to that because um Stephanie you brought in this word knowing and and I mm-hmm. think this is a really interesting word mm mm-hmm. Uh, And somehow it gets paired uh, with uncertainty um, Mm -hmm. as a kind of, you know, well, we know this or we're uncertain or we're ambiguous. And um, I think, you know, what I have seen with warm data work is that the way in which uh, experiences seem to season and shape and and tone our previous experiences are you following mm-hmm. so everything matters it, it it's, yeah. and it's like a really interesting yeah it's it's interesting to um to recognize that it, it's ongoing And Mm -hmm. everything you know about foie gras, for example, is is going to be shifted by the next time you eat foie gras. Thank God. As a shitty. And right. So so this knowing thing is is not a static state. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and so that means that you don't actually know. You're in the process of knowing, mm-hmm. right? And and so uncertainty and ambiguity must be part of that. Mm-hmm. They're not in separate categories. Mm-hmm. So this works for and against us, though I think. And and so this isn't just a beautiful thing. Mm. so much of the way in which we have experienced life up to this moment shapes the way you hear what i'm saying or the way you're sitting in your chair or the way you're digesting the last meal you had right so there's 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 um there's a lot of history and and sort of the ancestry of experience that's like a cauldron into which every new moment is dropped right mm-hmm. and when when people start thinking well what we need is you know imagination or innovation and then they source that from the same cauldron and so the thing the new idea is laced is woven is is carved in the same grain of wood as the the existing epistemology that it's trying to change. Mm. So how do we get to a place where the common sense, okay, that sense that we're making together is shifting Um, when each of us turns up with a cauldron of our own experience? And so this is what is happening in a warm data lab. Is that yeah. there, there's multiple contexts and the exploration of a question that is at a particular level of abstraction from the the contexts. Okay, it's not just any question. Mm-hmm. Um, so so these these things that we're talking about here about you know the the model and the dishes or the they they have a relationship to each other and they that relationship spins out into all kinds of communication. Yeah. Right? And so you want to be super careful what's in that gap. Yeah. Um because in that gap is is where that living part of you that will make connections that does make connections because that's all you can do is make connections and see relationships because you're a living thing. Um will make really dangerous connections. And then, and yeah. so it, it can go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we see this in, well, I mean, honestly, I just to take the gloves off the, a, a good deal of the media is yeah. just filled with pieces of information that have been completely decontextualized that then you and I, because we're living creatures, contextualize into our own lives mm-hmm. and turn them into craziness. And suddenly we're talking about, you know, immigration and immigration is about people who are coming to take away your way of life or something. It has, and, and all the context of the fact that you've been buying really cheap blue jeans for 50 is, years. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I've, 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 I've long had an idea that, um, like for one edition of the New York times, they should just show how all of the stories are connected. Yeah. Uh, this one about, you know, like corn subsidies is related to the obesity story and the other side of the tape, you know, exactly. just like, that's the edition of the paper is how yeah. all of our stories are connected Once to Once a year,
2: just give us one day yeah. a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but but that's the thing is that there's yeah. um you know there's a way in which you can make connection between these stories that opens up and expands into yeah into the into the premises of symbiosis okay into this yeah. ability to start perceiving how things are coming together there's another way that you can do it that turns it that naturalizes and justifies and and creates all sorts of havoc yeah um and and so it's it's really a tricky one
1: well that i mean that's why i kind of initially or i'm now thinking of or i have been thinking of knowing as a relationship right Mm -hmm. between the knower and what is being known which i mean is already a like a distinction we're just kind of deciding to make here um, or we, we can use sometimes we can use that distinction sometimes when it's useful you know and if we're tra- if we're wanting to have a loving relationship what does knowing look like what does knowing become when we want to have a loving relationship with what we're trying to know what we're trying to understand it can be very different and we don't need I mean um you know but then those like exhaustive maps or those like 17 boxes those just they become like I don't know, maybe interesting works of art. Like we don't necessarily need them. No (laughs) offense to art. But if we're just saying art is like something we created for fun, like it can just be like this thing we created for fun. Like look at these fun 17 boxes. It's like that's colorful and cool. (laughs) Not necessarily that I need it (laughs) or not that it's, you know, it's, you know, but, but the, yeah, I guess for me, the pressure kind of comes back to, to like, we're in a precarious place how do we know in a way that you know or how do we how do we make our map just good enough knowing the map is not the territory how do we make it just good enough that we can continue moving in the right direction together and how do we know when it's good enough that that's kind of all we need to move in the right direction
2: Mm. i think there are some people who are more more um sort of accustomed to swimming in that kind of water. Yeah. I think everybody can do it, uh, but but particularly um, people who are caught in a context that is pushing productivity are gonna have a hard time mm. um, n- n- with that knowing because it's, it's, it's pushing the action before the readying. I just wrote this essay that's out there on readying. I don't know if you've had a chance to see that. Um, But it's, it's basically, um, I I put it together with a a, a team of people. Um, It's a, it's looking at change from a very different place instead of looking at what's the problem and let's find the solution to the problem and take action it's basically producing a readying how do you produce a readying so that the possibility and start there and then instead of saying where it should go or what the optimum goals could be allow those possibilities to unfurl themselves Mm. um and so what does that mean what does that actually take? And and it, it takes a nourishment of, of that possibility of making connections between lots of different processes. Uh, lots. A, a few won't do. If you have a reduced number of processes that you're making connections between, you get craziness. But if you have lots of them, you don't have to, again, you don't have to make an exhaustive map, but you have to start to see You have to feel, you have to taste, you have to sense that, um, you know, that the education system is not just about school, right? It's about identity. It's about economy. It's about health. It's about family. It's about culture. It's about history. It's about technology. It's about, right? It's like, it's not just about how you, as a responsible parent, get your kid out the door at eight in the morning. And 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 who they will be, so that they fit into a system that y- you spend your day trying to actually change. <laughs> right. So so this this transcontextual basis is really important um, because it it opens up the room in which those connections get made, mm. and I think that's that's the big one. So yeah. in the readying, what you want to do is allow for that. So what you're doing, for example, with your farm, is that you're bringing in family, you're bringing in food, you're bringing in soil, you're bringing in cross cultural language. Questions are coming in. You've got lots of things happening at the same time, um, and and that's good. Yeah, I that's, was just, you know
0: I was just thinking yeah. this the the. The business we've made is is hosting these trips. And on the surface, it just sounds like, you know, an educational study abroad opportunity for kids, for undergraduates. But we really have worked to um, build out the structure of the institution of our school to allow for emergence um, and to be um, sensitive to, um, I guess, the desires of everybody, every party involved. So I like teaching. It's built around me being able to teach. The people we're working with, the farmers, they like to have um, help, <laughs> volunteer help. And they also mm-hmm. like to share their culture. The students like to experience um, nature, the farm. They like to learn about these things. They like the cross-cultural experience. So everybody involved were sensitive to their desires. But then, you know, you set up something that's like institutionally um, set up to be flexible and to allow for emergence. So when they first came, we didn't know, um, we didn't really have a curriculum outside, you know, we're going to have these experiences and then we're going to talk about it. Um, and what I learned is that the students ended up noticing, I was telling Nora before we started, um, a lot of the The social dynamics, even more so than the environmental ones, the environmental ones, too, but um, the way in which people work together. And and so we, you know, build the curriculum talking about, you know, this interdependence and social dynamics. But I guess my my question then is I've been thinking a lot recently about um, appropriate scale, and I think it's Mm -hmm. really hard to go to like a Peter Thiel type and say, you know, build an institution for me that allows for emergence. Like the scale's just too big. And we're so used to profit maximizing and so used to like thinking in terms of X, Y, and Z result, um, as opposed to like allowing some sort of scale for emergence. And our my school is my husband and I. Like it's the right scale, <laughs> excuse me, it's the right scale for us. We're flexible. We're adaptable. We're also in a a marriage so we can talk to each other and say like this is working this isn't once you get to even like 15 employees or 100 employees like you know allowing those you can't be as adaptable with this scale so i'm just thinking about your example with um you know reading the mainstream media new york times it's like neil postman like everything's out of context if you recontextualize and you do it at the right scale this meso scale i think there's possibilities there. Um, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I, honestly, I almost feel like people could make, m- make some sort of initiatives, programs, businesses, um, but at this scale where that allows for like emergent flexibility and, and like following intuition. Um, but I do think the meso scale is necessary too, because people, you can't just be on your own figuring this out. It It does require some interaction with other people and it's better as it as it scales up um, more impactful, gives people more opportunities
2: to slot in. Uh, Yeah, and um, I think it's really dangerous to come up with a model of how we're gonna save the world. (laughs) I think that's probably the most dangerous thing we could do because that model is going to hurt people it's going to make them angry it's going to isolate them they're going to be so mad they're going to not see their complexity in that model and they're going to be left out and they're they're going to feel like the model is not made for them the same way you feel when you you know but but times a thousand um when you call a number and it says push 1 for this and 2 for that and 3 for the other thing and 4 for this and you're like yeah but that's not what i'm calling for Right, and it's it's like ah ah, you know, and you get angry, but you also get sad. Like I just I can't. I where am I in this world? Where is my experience? And so this this thing of scale somehow has to be able to hold the possibility of the complexity that each person has. And this is something that we see in warm data all the time Um, because, you know, I spent years trying to teach systems thinking and complexity. And um, one of the reasons I developed the warm data lab was because I just realized it was, I wasn't getting anywhere
1: Mm.
2: and people were learning vocabulary for the you know they but they didn't it didn't attach to their lives mm. and for me in in my household growing up systems were not things you drew on the board systems were you know what was happening in the fish tank and what was happening mm-hmm. in the family and what mm-hmm. was you know it, it was something wild and alive and juicy and weird and unnameable um but that wasn't what I was seeing when I went out in the world and started looking at what, what was being taught as complexity. And I realized, you know, the, the name is not the thing named and the complexity is not in the vocabulary of complexity. It's in life. And Mm -hmm. and so when I was working on the warm data lab, what I was hoping was that everybody in the, in the process would begin to understand complexity not by some model on the board but through the complexity of their own lives mm. and essentially every time you hear someone tell a story from their life it's transcontextual any story you tell is going to have culture and family and money and god and you know history and tech and it's all going to be in there in one way or another Because life is actually moving through all of those all the time. Mm -hmm. So so the, the, the way in which groups that come out of this start to form questions, the questions are so different than what they might have going into them. So I think, you know, yeah, just in terms of working with communities, it changes the direction entirely of where projects start. So I think you just
1: kind of um help me understand how like I, I I maybe there's there's kind of like three um kind of ways of knowing or or ways of understanding here that I um one is this like reductionist context list, what we read in the news. Okay. Another one is like everything, fire hose, all of the information, everything possible, which is and then and then and then what I'm wondering is if there's this possibility of like just a few data points that different scales of organization that tell you the pattern, that's like what the three sisters, it's like, it works in my diet, it works in the earth. Like it works in an infinity of other ways. Maybe I can't like choose, you know, as long as I get three or something, then Mm -hmm. I've gotten the pattern of something that like, I wanna move in that direction, maybe. But, um, and, and I guess, I just wanna tie this to like, okay, so if we're gonna make this real, like what would be a, this kind of a way of knowing about, you know, if we're actually, if we're like thinking about the complex problems we talk about, COVID, climate, okay, let's take climate. Okay, climate, climate, the climate crisis manifests itself obviously not just in the, in the atmosphere, in our lungs, in our gardens, You know, in our floods, fires, wars, like it manifests itself in so many places, and so many ways that we can all read and understand and act on. And so, maybe to just to ask this in kind of like a blasphemous way, like to what extent do we need climate climate change? The idea of climate. To what extent do we need climate science? I don't even know how to ask this. To what extent do we even need that in order to take appropriate climate action like is there a way of just like do we even need the term climate science i don't know is that crazy
0: to well, ask? i haven't i have actually i like wrote an acad- wrote and published an academic paper on this specific topic so i oh, want to jump great. in because <laughs> i i literally interviewed people who uh lived in and lived around in and around chicago people in the, in the city and people in the rural area who um produced at least 50 percent of their own food um and just interviewed them about it and basically the the um city people did it for climate change but the rural people a lot of them didn't even don't even believe that climate change is anthropogenic um but they're doing the exact same actions because they're they want clean food um and they care about soil health and they care about pollution um a lot of them are like conservationist hunter and fisherman types and so it was like I wrote this paper that was basically like there's a way bigger environmental movement that we're not seeing because these people are like blasphemous because they don't agree to the um you know the the doctrine of climate science but but in action they're doing the same so it's you know isn't that what we want i mean yeah like what is the
1: purpose of knowing way like obviously there's knowledge for knowledge's sake and that can be beautiful in the 17 boxes and put them on the wall and you know frame it if you want to yeah um but ultimately we're trying to know things i mean in order to do things in order to like do things and live well and live together and live harmoniously and make you know make the game more infinite to the extent that we can and so yeah it's like i don't need to i guess just in response yeah it's like it's it's all good with me. If people don't, it's like if they don't believe in, if they don't know in the same way that I know, or they don't conclude the same thing that I conclude. If the actions that we're taking um, are the rightful actions,
2: um, yeah. Well, I want to let Nora <laughs> yeah, respond yeah, let too. Nora go. Yeah. I mean, i i I think that we have again made a map territory mistake. It's a, it, because the climate crisis is a consequence. The, it's not the problem, it's the consequence. Mm. And, and so you, how many climate conferences have I been to where no one mentioned the family? Where nobody, where people were all dressed up in suits and standing at podiums and signaling all the same cultural signals of personal identity and credibility, but trying to talk about the climate crisis as being the problem. And I mean, I I think prestige is the problem. Um, You know, the whole way we think about success or what makes you credible or believable, that's an issue that is feeding climate change. You know, the particulate in the sky and the chemicals in the soil are coming from this epistemic situation of wanting to be in control, of wanting to scale things up, of wanting to make higher levels of productivity. And so then we come in to the climate crisis and say, we need to scale this up and have a higher level of productivity to address climate change. But that's exactly the thinking that's creating it. And so the, the ecological thinking the the symbiosis thinking that those premises are going to move, they're going to shape, they're going to, they're going to walk, talk, smell so different than what we know of as taking action toward a linear goal and and this is something i mean i'm sure that someone listening is going to want to chop my head off for saying this right now but this i mean i i don't know how how else to say it anymore that this is not we can't address this with linear problem solving that's how we got into it yeah
0: i mean it's i'll just reass- I'll reassure you that almost all of our listeners are very um sick of that that approach and that's why they found us they really a lot of people um i came up with this term just frustrated on twitter spreadsheet brain and it's like that <laughs> the, the spreadsheet brain is is the enemy of doomer optimism we re, we all realize that a lot of people in the this sphere are like putting their hands in the soil um but you know also re-embracing i mean i just think of i think of breastfeeding as such a perfect example like imagine going to a climate conference and giving a speech about breastfeeding as a way of <laughs> as a way of meeting all of the sustainable development goals, um, it would mm-hmm. make people's heads explode, even though it's really just part of, you, you know, you have to make it so that a woman is um, held in a community, yes.
2: in a space. cross generations.
0: Interdependent. Yeah. And that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. So all of those things get solved at once, um, if you make yeah. that. But the the whole system has to support for that one act yes. to be possible. Right, totally. Which is why. So it's like if the task at hand
1: was create the conditions conducive to moms being able to breastfeed their children, then you know if that was the thing we're all organized around. <laughs> Um, I'll, yes. I, although me being the yes and all of the above, it's like, under what circumstances can spreadsheet brain be helpful? Are there a few? Are there any? I imagine there might be I mean, one. Fewer. <laughs> I, I fewer, feel, exactly. And yeah. that's the more important point. And fewer. Just
2: knowing when to use it. And yes, when not
1: knowing it. when to use it and knowing it's not the only way.
2: <laughs> and, you know, the, the tendency is to try to use it for everything
1: for everything but isn't that what we do with every new tool we invent like that that i think is the yeah. sh- it would be the shift because when we come up with a new tool we're like this is the best this is the best this is the one and only we should use it for but using it for everything is how we discover what it's useful for and what it's not useful for mm-hmm. and so the shift to me would be like assuming it's not going to work for everything you know like trying it with without the dogma experimenting with this thing. Like, does it work here? No, here, yes, cool. You know, and I think that would like kind of take the edge off (laughs) this this co-evolution that we're doing with our tools. We just assume like, it's not going to be useful for everything, but let's discover it. Let's explore it. Let's play with it. Let's not get too
2: attached to it. I mean, if you want to know what systems change looks like, look at the late 1800s. Because that was when we got a serious systems change, mm-hmm. um, and in in that period of time, sort of 1850 to 1898 or something, everything changed, and this idea of high productivity. And the factory and the factory started to reflect the schools and the health system and the word economics happened and statistics happened and, you know, statistics and, and eugenics were connected. And I mean, it was about control and bettering and optimizing and efficiency and measuring, measuring, measuring. And in order to do that, everything had to get pulled out of context. You can't measure something in context. Hmm. Just think about that for a second. You can't measure it in context because yeah, you have to
1: take it you have to stop it you have to you stop have to, it from like yeah. being alive
2: in order to like <laughs> well and you have um, to take it out of the multiplicity of relationships you know if you ask the question you know how big is a grasshopper and you measure that grasshopper, and you're like, the grasshopper is an inch and a half, or it's two and a half centimeters, or whatever you want to call that. That is locked in a particular way of looking. It is not actually a, a grasshopper is not actually two and a half centimeters. Mm-hmm. Right? The grasshopper, if you ask them the mites how big is a grasshopper? Or you ask the, you know, the, the, the trees, how big is a grasshopper or the earthworms or the bacteria or the, right? So the measurement is going to be locked in one particular way of knowing.
0: Or the grasshopper's life cycle,
2: you know, it's, the grass, it's growing. Exactly.
1: Yeah. The time. Right. Or yeah, the tree might also say that information, quote unquote, is not relevant to me or is not important to me. Go have fun with it if you want to. Right. <laughs> so, With your
2: seventeen cubes, yeah. So um, we we are getting into trouble by forgetting that our perception is just a perception. Well, I, think-
0: I want to ask. Oh, you- yeah, you go, oh, ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna go back to a question you and I talked about before um, we when we were organizing this. So you go and um, I can follow up if need be. Uh, well, th-
1: this is just. So, you know, you have said, and I hear you, we cannot, right, the the way, the way that, the kind of thinking that got us into this mess is not going to get us out. And so if we continue to use this way of thinking, and, um, and I also hear this, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm mishearing, but, you know, kind of turning this spreadsheet brain (laughs) or um, decontextualization into a wrong way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And and my my kind of sense, or this is just kind of how I am, at least right now at this moment in time, is to, is to instead of making it wrong, I mean, some things I can make wrong, but m- more often than is it right or wrong, is just to ask the question under what circumstances or in what context would it be helpful or would it be fun or would it be enjoyable or equitable or useful? And so, yeah, I do you know, do you think that there are no circumstances under which asking the question, How long is a grasshopper and having the answer be two and a half inches, like is there no
2: circumstance under which that would ever be a worthwhile activity? Mm. or is the, the it the trick yeah. is that that we could do that and we could have that measurement, but we just have to remember that it's just a perception and that's the yeah. part where it gets toxic. It would be fine if okay. we were able to use these hold things. It, and hold it hold it loosely. Okay, but that's just yeah. that. Now, what about all this warm data that's here? Also. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that is not the, the 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 trickery of this is that mm-hmm. it's like telling someone you don't be racist. <laughs> yeah you know you, you can't just tell people that because the place in which that racism is living is um is is below under wrapped in insidious little corners of experience and ways of living in their lives that they aren't even aware of yeah so, so I mean, the same yeah. thing is true with um, industrialism. Mm-hmm. It's yes. deeply insidious. It's like a it's like you know heroin. And and you have to be super careful when you play with it because if you're trying to work with complexity and living systems, that's such a, a, a we're not used to that yet. And we're 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 unwieldy with it. And yeah. every time we blink an eye, this, this thing sneaks back in and yes. someone with all the best intentions creates 17 sustainable development goals. I am absolutely 100% certain that they knew they were doing the right thing.
0: Yep. But yes. This is my 100%. Century. Yep. And yes.
2: so, but, but this thing, this eugenics, this thing, this, it sneaks in. Yeah.
1: Yes yeah and, and yes and then i would say so yes and um may we not be as totalizing it with you know our next thing you know may may we also see it as just the latest thing the next thing the the next thing that will also be provisional and also be also evolve. you know like may we hold the next thing a little looser so that it too can continue to evolve, you know, or we too can continue to co-evolve with it.
2: I and I—that's where I absolutely think this next thing is this, you know, undetermined mm. nth order, you know, nourishing the conditions, the readying of what can happen. Um, uh, without it's—it's it's very loose in its holding. And you um, know, and I'll, I'll, oh, sorry, you go. Ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, this is a really tricky question. Okay. And I'm, I know that I'm being kind of binary about this, but, (laughs) but I also just want to be provocative and say, is there a moment when a little bit of eugenics is okay with you?
0: (laughs) Right. I'm going to answer that.
1: again.
2: You know, no, it's not okay. And, and, And how, especially when we don't know what we're doing. And so I, it's, it's, this is a provocative thing. And and it's really hard to, to be in the world that we are in. And having grown up into the language and the education system and the understanding of, you know, science, I come from a family of scientists, Mm. so I love science and, and I don't really have a problem with measuring grasshoppers, but what I do (laughs) have a problem with is deciding
1: that that is the,
2: the underlying epistemic, Mm um, premises from which the questions that get pursued are taking place from which actions are derived. Um I mean, I would just know?
0: I would go further. Um, I told this to Stephanie we we talked um that I sometimes tend to um, on purpose rhetorically swing farther in the opposite direction just to kind of pull the conversation toward the middle. Um, and I think that there's some there's some value to that rhetorically just because so much is going in one direction. It's nice to be this lone voice that then can you know, sort of bring people into the discussion. And then, you know, then once we have a more nuanced discussion, we can meet in the middle. But like an example I can think of is um, in the name of climate smart agriculture. Um, Peasant agriculturalists in Africa who live in balance and produce in balance with uh, nature, enough food for everybody to eat but there aren't producing the maximum yields according to what can be measured are being taken off of their land in favor of like drones and machines in the name of climate smart agriculture. And I, I see this kind of thing e- even here in my context in Uruguay. So it's like, there is a point at which the measurement itself is destructive. Um, yeah. Because what you decide to measure can uh, determine what is of worth. And so the, the, the ecological, agroecological producers they're really hard to measure um, in some ways because it's complex. It changes through seasons. The yields are not all standardized. Um, A lot of times you're running animals in through with plants and like they're stacking different production methods as opposed to a field that's all planted with one thing and the yields are all standardized and measurable and comparable across the world. Um, This is an example that like illustrates the point of how it's, how it can be violence to choose what to measure but then the the positive side i see is um i'm friends with a a couple of these people on uh twitter who are like young men frustrated by the way science works but also like extremely interested in esoteric like anthropology um entomology plant science and so they hold science in this kind of like Uh, light way you know like they want to know the names of things according to science they know all these different plant species but then they spend a lot of time out in nature just cataloging things and noticing things and taking pictures of them I feel super hopeful for this younger generation where like maybe there is a swing back and I don't know if either of you have any interaction with these younger generation but I, I think there is a potential there
2: I mean, I, I have to just be perfectly honest with you that in the course on warm data, there's the whole section that we talk about the relationship between reductionism and, and complexity and, and holism and how important that is. Okay. So, so Mm. I I may be giving off this impression, but, but it is important that they, that we have both and, you know, we have to be able to zoom in and look at things and we have to be able to zoom out and see how they are in relationship. The problem is that when we pull things out of context, we don't usually put them back. Yes. Mm, yes. And so, so my my dream, of course, is to explore what questions does a, you know, does a, a more warm data approach bring to reductionist science? Like how might the questions be changed if they're, you know, if they're born in another way of thinking instead of the other way around? So very often I find that we're taking reductionist versions of problems and trying to solve them with systemic thinking, as opposed to taking systemic thinking and then coming up with questions that we can then use reductionism to inform. And, and and that's a that's a, I think we just we just have a, a future where we can begin to ask really different questions. And I think mm-hmm. the question of the breastfeeding is the perfect example, mm-hmm. right? How do we make the future, you know, viable for mm-hmm. breastfeeding? <laughs> because actually, <laughs> mammals have to feed their young. So yeah. how do we feed the babies? you know, it's the most basic, I have a whole little thing on feed the babies, but it's, it's like a, it's the most basic question. How do you feed the babies? Mm -hmm. And if you ask that question, then all this other stuff gets brought brought in, in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not that it's not there, um,
1: the fact that you talk that you talk about or you teach about the like relationship or collaboration between reductionism and systems thinking, I love that you are speaking my love language. Uh, my last um, when I last came on doomer optimism, we talked about. I, I call it synthetic strategy because I don't know what else to call it, but it's this it's this the question of under what circumstances is what way well actually it's more um is what way helpful and which ways do we prefer more than others and how might we um collaborate between the different ways i mean my favorite i'm just thinking of my favorite scene in avatar is when jake is um he's like he's flying the pterodactyl but he has the machine it's like there's the there's the like industrial gi like transformer thing and then there's like the swarm intelligence like you know i don't remember the names of the and they're kind of fighting each other and then like jake swoops in on the pterodactyl the like swarm intelligence bio but like with the machine gun he's got both forms of intelligence and that's the so anyway i'm yeah i get excited when i hear about um because we have more ingredients to work with we get to make more interesting things like new things we've never made okay but so last question for you because we're running out of time last question for you is um about just about the idea of context um I you know because that too like you know there's no we could say there's there's no difference between um, shallow ecology and deep ecology. Deep ecology and sh- we say shallow ecology when people are a part of their ecosystem because then there is no like Earth for its own sake. We are part of like taking care of the ecosystem is taking care of ourselves. um And I I just wonder like is there when you think about context? The, I, I guess there's a way in which context is itself a shifting. You know what we call the context and and there's a way in which. I don't even know what that, like, do you think of, um, do you, there's a way in which when I am in, let's say, a loving relationship with my context or what I'm trying to know, the distinction kind of disappears. And then it's just us in a process of kind of collective self-discovery, you could say. I, I was just, yeah, I was curious how you think about the, <laughs> the concept of context, maybe, and if that. You think of it in a kind of non-dual way, or how that? How how do you think about that? I, I,
0: if I could just add to that, um, uh, this is what I was going to ask as my final question too. So let's just tack them together because I think it's very it's just very similar. I think there, I I don't want to get too woo-woo about it, but sometimes you need to. Um, <laughs> there is there is something to love um, mm-hmm. here, and I think love being care and attention and um, interaction in in just a holding place um, where knowing in the context of love makes a sort of different outcome as opposed to knowing in the context of using, utilization, fixing. exploitation, <sighs> fixing, solving, um, you know, I think controlling. So Yeah, I wonder, I don't know if we want to, I think ending on this would be good, but if we want to go very to the woo end, um, we're three (laughs) women, you know, there is something in the feminine that has love in it. And I think if I think about the breastfeeding example, um, it's an instinct for love that's, um, you know, fundamentally caring in nature um it's not because somebody told me like i can save this amount of money breastfeeding <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> that just is. makes no sense it's because i see my infant turn toward my breast when she's born and open her mouth to suckle like it's there's there's an animal instinct and the instinct is based in love and mutual care and interdependence so i wonder yeah if you have some thoughts on that the love question
2: <laughs> Awesome. I think that um, um you know what is in a context is uh relationships. Relationships between lots of different organisms or things that are happening, lots of different relationships, and that that context. You know, let's say it's a jungle. It's it's not in the trees, and it's not in the insects, and it's not in the soil. It's not, but it's in the relationship between them. You know, and so it's kind of an inconvenient thing to note, but you know, relationships are made of communication, and so. First, we might get caught thinking we're going to change the parts of the jungle. We've got to fix the trees, we've got to fix the soil, we've got to fix the insects, we've got to fix the reptiles, we've got to fix the, right? Then we might say, ah, it's the relationships. We got to tend to these relationships. Um, But what's in the relationships is communication. And I think one of the things that I'm so interested in is is not controlling or limiting or scripting communication, but asking the question, what's it possible to communicate?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Which is really a different question than what is being communicated. So what's implicit in that question, what's it possible to communicate is that there are limits. And those limits, they don't have to, It's this is not a bad thing, okay? You, the, the limits that create jungles or limits that create oceans, limits that creates families, it's not a bad thing to have limits in communication. The question is, what are they? And how can we pay attention to those limits? Mm-hmm. Um, and those limits, I would say, radically, um, even in a jungle or an ocean, certainly in a family or a society, um all of those are living systems, a body, your body, my body. Um those limits are formed at least in part through the aesthetics, the tone, the atmosphere, the vibe, the the flavor, the the, the um The harmonics, if you will, that are there. And so when I hear both of you speaking about love in this way, what I am hearing is, um, and of course, you know, it's called warm data for a reason, right? What happens when you start to actually perceive the details of your own life, your grandmother's recipe, whatever, through all these different contexts? What happens? is that you're able to actually perceive yourself and your experience and others in, in a way that has a kind of integrity to it and a kind of generosity in it that, that I would call love. That there is something in the very nature of symbiosis that is love, that these things come together, organisms come together and they change each other. They shape each other. The tone that that happens in matters. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a question, you know, when you're with your kid or you're with your partner, what are you making it possible or impossible to be to have in your communication just pay attention to that who is it possible to be when when i'm with you who can i be because i think the thing that is so sad right now is that we're limiting each other's ability mm-hmm. to be um to be we're limiting each other's possibilities and that's completely counterindicated to memes like be the change right which is going to point you right back at that individualistic you need to you know get on a higher level what where who do i allow you to be and this is not something that is explicit. This is implicit stuff. It's in the way we are together, and um, I, you know, you can you can forget how many signals and codes and you know intonations and and possibilities we are eliminating just in our gestures before you've said a word and what are those limitations so i think when we're really thinking about context that's the kind of stuff we're talking about
0: i love that all right well on that note that was so beautiful thank you so much nora thank you stephanie for um inviting us this was lovely um pure doomer optimism content. I love it so much. Um, this is very helpful to us. And I think a lot of us are grappling with these issues, I think in our, in our lives and work and vocation. And so, um, a nice little beacon for our listeners to get them to, to, keep up the good work and carry on, um, as many of them are doing. So, um, <laughs> thank you so what much. What else
2: are you going to do? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Right? Keep going. <laughs> All Just right. Keep going. But
1: take the, take the training wheels and the pedals off. Yes. Yeah. And then keep yeah. going. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Nora. And thank oh, you, Ashley, thank for you being willing to host Ashley. this. This was so fun. It was really yeah. fun.
0: It was yeah. really Have a great one, everybody. Bye-bye. You too.
1: Bye.